Good evening, everyone. I think we'll make a start. Um, my name is Frances Flanagan. I'm a historian and research affiliate at the Sydney Environment Institute. And um, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the third of the Small Changes Conversation Series, which is being run by the Sydney Environment Institute uh, together with Sydney Ideas. So before we begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Inuora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share in our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within the university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So, the Small Changes series, if you haven't been to hear us before, is uh, an attempt to showcase some of the latest academic research on the environment and doing it through the lens of lifestyle. So we're trying to put our researchers into dialogue with the people who make, produce and design the things that we eat, drink and wear every day. So tonight our focus is animal husbandry, which as I'm sure you know is the management and care of farm animals by human beings. Animal husbandry has been practised of course for thousands of years um, and changes occurred to it in the course of the Industrial Revolution but changes have accelerated dramatically um, since the 1960s uh, to produce mass factory farms and chemical-based methods of agribusiness that dominate global food production today. In Australia, more than 540 million farm animals are raised for food each year. Most of them will never see the sun on their back or feel the earth under their feet. Processes designed to carry animals from factory to fork with maximum efficiency mean that the overwhelming majority of animals raised for food spend their lives surrounded by concrete and steel in conditions so confining that it's impossible for them to carry out their natural behaviours such as foraging in the dirt and the grass and nurturing their young. Many invasive husbandry procedures are performed without anaesthetic, including castration, spaying, mulesing, dehorning, tail docking, branding and debeaking of poultry. Weak food labelling laws mean that food producers are not required to disclose information about conditions in factory farms. Food labels instead show green fields, use words like farm fresh and drastically euphemise the conditions of pain and confinement that characterise intensive farming practices. In many states, ag-gag laws prevent individuals from documenting or recording commercial agricultural facilities obstructing the flow of information and accountability that would help people understand where their food comes from. Reform to existing systems of food production are not only urgent from the point of view of animal welfare, they're also essential for food security in the 21st century. Agriculture, and especially meat and dairy, account for 70% of fresh water consumption, 38% of land use and 19% of world greenhouse gases. The human population is predicted to peak in the 2060s at around 11 billion people. And so for those people to be fed, global food production has to double and has to double within the context of severe resource constraints, using half the present levels of fresh water, far less land, sources of fuel other than fossil fuels, scarce fertilisers, and in the, all in the context of vastly higher levels of climate variability. So at the moment we use too much land, water, energy and chemical fertiliser to produce our food and we also throw a huge amount of it away. Every year in Australia, $8 billion worth of edible food gets chucked in the bin. So the reforms required to the system are monumental to say the least, they're systemic, but the situation is far from hopeless um, and is in part because we have the best and brightest working on these problems. So it gives me great... Uh, joy and hope to introduce three of, three of those people to you tonight. 
Uh, Dr Sabrina, Lo Sabrina Lomax is a research fellow in the Faculty of Veterinary Science at the University of Sydney. Sabrina's family agricultural background led to her interest in animal health and production. She wrote a successful honours research project into the efficacy of topical anaesthesia for pain, ma pain management of mules and wounds. Um, and this resulted in the extension of her research into a PhD examining topical anaesthesia for painful livestock husbandry procedures. Kate Wingert is also undertaking a PhD in veterinary science. Oh, sorry, just to clarify, Sabrina already has her PhD. Kate is um, working on hers at the moment in the field of food and nutrition security. She graduated from the University of Sydney with a Bachelor of Veterinary Science in 1996 and has worked in small animal general practice in the Blue Mountains, the UK and in Sydney. Kate's master's research, oh, so her research, investigates the willingness of Australians to consume mutton and sheep offal and determine what the consumption of these meats might mean in terms of human health, animal welfare and greenhouse gas emissions. Her research uses a One Health framework, a strategy that seeks to promote, improve and defend the health of all people, animals and the environment. And last of all, Grant Hilliard is the co-owner and director of Feather and Bone, a boutique meat shop which aspires to increase consumer awareness of the cycle from paddock to plate and encourage people to eat food that improves their collective health at every step of the cycle. So I'll ask each of our panellists to introduce their work to you for about 10 minutes. We'll have a conversation together and then open to the floor for questions. So first of all, Sabrina. Hello everyone. Uh, thanks for coming along tonight. Um, so I was asked to sort of summarise my research and it's almost been 10 years of research now um, in about 10 slides. So uh, I haven't used 10 slides, I've used a little bit more, but hopefully I can give you a bit of an overview of what I do and have been doing for a few years now in terms of pain management in livestock. So um, who am I? I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Sydney Vet um, Science Faculty, which is just next door. Um, I completed, and I've been here for a very long time, I sort of started an honours project in a really new area which um, uh, a paediatrician came to us with a new product, a topical anaesthetic product, and she got this idea from using it in babies before injection. And so she thought, she had a sheep farm and she saw the lambs being mules and she thought, why don't we use something like this in our animals as well? So we built an honours project around that and it was quite successful so um, we got funding and it became my PhD and now it's become my life um, in a good way. Um, so now my research uh, with the uni revolves around a general improvement of welfare in livestock, um, specifically undergoing well, uh, husbandry procedures. Uh, my main focus is in merino welfare but I have been dabbling in sort of beef production and sheep, uh, pigs as well and a little bit of dairy. So we have a terrible team name. We've called ourselves Team Pain and it was a last minute thing and we've decided it's just stuck with us and so now we're stuck with this name Team Pain which it, it, we're actually quite the opposite. We're, we're focused on um, working with farmers to develop uh, practical and affordable pain management um, for on-farm use. Um, also, mulesing, mulesing, mulesing is pretty much my focus. Um, I have been doing a lot of work, not just on pain management, but working with the industry to develop standards around the procedure. Um, I've also recently, um, with a student, completed a survey into farmer attitudes around um, 
the painful husbandry practices and their attitudes towards incorporating pain management on farm, which had incredibly positive results. Um, we also are kind of uh, looking at new methods for objectively assessing pain. Um, the traditional methods that we rely on have their limitations, so we're trying new sort of relatively non-invasive methods like this is a sheep strapped to an EEG machine to measure um, electroencephalographic responses. Um, this is a sheep with a GPS collar on it um, to measure spatial usage. And this is infrared thermography. Um, you can see this is a cow's head that's been dehorned. De um, and these little hot spots here are the wound. Um, and this is cow, uh, a calf's testes um, and this, the scrotum here. And you can see it's sort of hot in the inguinal canal there. Um, so to give you a brief introduction, uh, in case any of you aren't so familiar with husbandry procedures in livestock, um, we perform a number of husbandry procedures annually, mostly on juvenile livestock, um, and these include procedures like castration, which is a management technique um, predominantly, so we use it to improve meat quality, but also to manage um, uh, undesirable sexual characteristics like fighting in males or OHNS issues that might arise. Um, and tail docking and mulesing, which are fly strike prevention um, and I would argue important to, for animal welfare. Um, ear tagging and ear notching, which are identification techniques. Dehorning, um, again, for management purposes and branding for identification. All of these procedures have been well documented as painful. Um, there's a plethora of literature out there for people to read and I'd be happy to discuss around that as well. Um, the most important thing is that in Australia and in the US as well, um, and most around the world where they do these procedures, um, there is no analgesia or anesthesia employed for these procedures, which presents a significant welfare impact on the animal. Um, I just want to talk briefly about fly strike uh, because it is sort of my main area of focus. Um, it's a economically and welfare significant disease caused by this terrible little green fly called Lucilia caprina or Lucy. She lays maggots in these lovely little folds on the merino sheep um, which love to collect moisture and feces um, and create the perfect environment for her maggots to grow and um, become more flies. Um, there are significant costs to the wool industry and losses and more importantly there is a very significant um, effect on animal health and welfare. This is a fly struck sheep and I really think it's important to share this image, um, albeit it's graphic, um, but I, I feel people don't necessarily always understand the impact that fly strike can have on sheep and seeing a fly struck sheep is, is quite um, confronting. You can see the physical damage that's caused not just from the sheep irritating, being irritated but also the maggots themselves have little um, physical teeth that cause physical damage. They secrete a proteolytic en enzyme that digests the protein in the skin and just basically eats the animal alive. All these little grey bits are maggots. It's quite horrifying. So Mm, this slide's a bit funny, but basically mulesing is performed, which is a very painful procedure. It, it involves the removal of the folds of skin from the breech to reduce the buildup of moisture and feces in this area. Tail docking is also performed. Te lambs, unfortunately, and sheep 
don't have the ability to, to lift their tail when they defecate and urinate, so they tend to collect faeces in urine, which um, again builds up and causes this lovely environment for flies. The procedure is very confronting, and I'm, I apologise for the graphic images. I meant to warn you about this, so please berate me if you must. I'm, I'm, I really do apologise. Um, uh, it is a very um, confronting procedure. Um, however, farmers wouldn't pr perform the procedure if it wasn't a necessity to avoid fly strike. Um, I've done a lot of research on wound healing of this, um, looking at how we can reduce the, the size of the wound to reduce the impact on the animal, and we've made really good progress with that. But most importantly, pain management. Why do we need to provide pain management? I think we can no longer ignore the animal welfare impacts of these procedures. Um, you know, it's been a very long time since we've uh, acknowledge that animals are cognitive beings and able to experience pain in a similar way to ourselves. So pain management is essential as a management procedure on farm um, and a responsibility um, to improve animal welfare. Why has it been limited in limited use on farms? Well, Australia, you know, has around 80 million merino sheep at the moment. So. Every year we have millions of lambs getting mules. The cost is a significant deterrent to the, um, the use of um, pain management on farms. Uh, cost involves the time for administration. Often uh, things like we might have like lignocaine when we go to the dentist to get a tooth pulled or general anesthesia or epidurals are very time and cost, time costly and money costly, so um, farmers tend to be deterred by that. Um, and, you know, when you're marking thousands of lambs, it's often not a priority to increase the time it takes to do so because labour is very expensive and the margins just are no longer there for, for most farmers. So the aim of my research is really to look at farmer-applied practical and affordable methods for um, inducing anesthesia in these, for these procedures. Um, trisulfan is an amazing product. So this is what I did my honours project on and my PhD. Um, it was developed by a company called Animal Ethics Proprietary Limited. They're a very small company. Um, it was then sold to Bayer. It contains two um, anesthetic actives as well as adrenaline to help with cl um, blood clotting and cetramide as an antiseptic. It has um, immediate post-procedural application, so you spray it on immediately after the, the wound is um, opened and it's very practical, just wear it as a backpack. Um, it's easily incorporated, incorporated into the marking regime. Um, it is registered now for mulesing and we're hoping that it will get registered for other procedures as well. And we found it's very efficacious um, in reducing the pain associated with mulesing. Not sure why that, probably to save you all the images. Um, we also found it's effective for lamb, calf and piglet castration um, and we found with mulesing around 70 to 80% of farmers are now using this product um, who mules and they can actually register their wool under a, a several different programs as um, pain management um, mules animals. So it's really effective for castration and we've, um, we've sort of found a technique to where you insert it right up into the scrotum and you ensure all that mucosal tissue is um, well coated. 
we found that it, it's, it helps reduce the sensitivity of dehorning wounds, but these wounds provide a really um, big problem in that they're, they bleed quite a lot and often wash away the product. So we're looking at different formulations to try and improve the adhesion to the wound surface. Um, new areas that we're moving into, so I've been playing around with cryoanesthesia, which I think is really great. It's, it, it, if, you in, if you freeze tissue to around zero degrees um, or just below 10 degrees, basically, you um, stop neurotransmission. So you can um, basically stop pain responses for a short period of time for perioperative pain management. And this is a piglet being ear notched and I've just, you freeze the little tips of their ears and um, normally this procedure causes quite a response and you can see these little piglets getting their ears notched and there's no response. So we've been, we're publishing work on this and we found it's really effective in cattle as well. So um, simple things like this that we can take from human medicine will work really well in animal medicine and this is, you know, really, really cheap and easy to apply. So options like that. We're also looking at other forms of analgesia. We've got things like xylazine and midazolam, which are sedative analgesics, but obviously come into the human safety issues there. Um, we're looking at intranasally spraying these products up the nose so that you get um, fast-acting um, pain management without having to inject the animal, and so there's reduced human safety issues there. And also moving into looking at long-acting non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, um, which I think is the really the, the industry, the entire industry, wool, beef and sheep meat are all moving in this direction. So to summarise, um, the implications of my research, I just wanted to basically happy, healthy animals are productive animals. And I struggled to try and fit into the environmental side of things, but I think animal welfare in itself is something that everybody cares, will, should care about um, and for the reason that happy, healthy animals are productive animals. Um, the other thing is that really our research is focused on farmer-oriented solutions. If we don't work with the farmers and for the farmers, the solutions are never going to be implemented across the nation and, and amongst all these animals. So farmers do care, and I found that by spending a lot of time with a lot of farmers, um, but they really need solutions that are going to work with them and that they can afford, that they can incorporate, and they can use easily um, because otherwise they're just not going to use them. Uh, I just wanted to show you some photos of some of the guys that I work with. This guy is sort of really quiet, shy guy, and he's just holding a little lamb like a baby because was, he was just waiting there and he just started cuddling this lamb, so I thought I'd take a photo because it was really cute. Um, all the farmers that I work with are just excellent. They work really hard for their animals and they really do care and they want solutions. I have farmers calling me up saying, I have an idea for a way that we can improve welfare on farm. Can we do an experiment? So I'm actually going down to Taralga next week because this farmer has called me and wants, wants to, do, to try out some new procedures and some new drugs. Um, so I guess the take-home message is, you know, we're working towards a best practice approach um, to improving on-farm welfare. And it's a, a slow process, but I think we'll get there in the end. So thank you for your time today. And, yeah. Hello, my name's Kate. I'm a, uh, in my first year of Master of Veterinary Science by Research. 
and uh, as mentioned by Francis, uh, my project is in food and nutrition security and I'll be focusing on the role that mutton can play and sheep offal um, in our future food and nutrition security. And I guess at this stage people are probably thinking why does Australia need to um, think about our food and nutrition security? Uh, we've got about 24 million people currently live in Australia and we produce enough food to feed 60 million people. So most of the food's fresh and readily available, so we should have enough food to all be food nutrient secure. But unfortunately that's not always the case. So in the study I'll be looking at um, the micronutrient content of, of food. Um, we've got a lot of deficiencies are emerging in people living in the developed world and not only in the developing world. And uh, this is partly due to the increased consumption of what we call discretionary foods. And these are foods that are high in energy but very low in nutrient content and soft drinks are a great example of that. And currently in Australia, according to our last National Health Survey, 35% of our energy needs currently come from these discretionary foods. And uh, also seeing that um, there's, um, in terms of food security, our grazing, our grazing ruminants are important for food but also very important for export income. And so having a sustainable export income into the future for Australia is very important. Our top three export uh, items at the moment are all mining products and so the longevity of these is unknown and agricultural uh, products are something that into the future we could certainly rely on for export. Um, the problem with our agricultural um, ruminants is that they produce a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. So. We're trying to abate greenhouse gas emissions and also um, improve our uh, production levels there and get enough food to feed the 42 million people that are predicted to live in Australia by the turn of the century. So it's a big challenge for our farmers. And on top of that, we've also got extreme weather events likely to reduce the um, agricultural productivity uh, during that time. So utilising older sheep that have already been um, giving us wool throughout their lifetime for food for people in terms of mutton and sheep offal um, certainly is an avenue that we could look at. So I'll just talk a little bit more about the nutrient problems in Australia there. Um, as I said, we've got a lot of problems with um, in not taking in enough uh, nutrients there. Um, you can see from the... Uh, from the slide there that we're, according to the last health survey, iron in particular is a problem for our women. 23% uh, of all females undertake an inadequate amount of iron. Uh, mutton is a very rich source of iron as well as zinc, copper, B6 and B12. Um, and so it offers a solution to um, our micronutrient deficiencies. And micronutrient deficiencies are a problem for us in that they can um, lead to a lot of health issues, not only in, um, as I say, not in, in developing countries but developed countries and a lot of obese and overweight people are also experiencing micronutrient deficiencies and so there's the potential there to cost the government a lot of money in health care. Um, as well as these micronutrients here, uh, mutton's also very rich in... Uh, omega-3 fatty acids and protein and offal like uh, liver is, fat, is rich in fatty acids, riboflavin and vitamin A and very rich in iron. They're also a potentially uh, cheaper uh, animal source food and uh, so we may be able to help greater, a greater number of the community with these foods.
Today Australians don't eat a lot of mutton and offal. Uh, you can see there that in 2013 the average per head consumption of mutton was less than half a kilogram each and in 1960 we had 29 kilograms each. Unfortunately there's no data on the current consumption of offal uh, but up until the last data was released there was steadily declining intake. And it's, the reasons for this are unclear at this stage, it will be part of my research. Um, but it's certainly not due to a lack of production. We, there's, as Sabrina said, there's 72.6 million sheep in Australia at the moment and over 50% of these sheep are merinos and they produce a lot of mutton and offal for us and the majority of this is exported overseas, over 80% of it, over predominantly into our Asian markets where it's utilised as food. So just looking at the reasons why we've shifted away from mutton um, over the decades we've um, started to eat a lot more chicken and pig meat at the expense of beef and sheep. Uh, there's many factors. Um, an important one is the perceived health benefits of eating chicken and pork. In the 1970s the World Health Organisation advised us all to reduce our saturated fat intake and offered chicken as a healthy alternative to red meat. A chicken contains 50% less iron than mutton and with the intensification of the poultry industry the composition of the meat's changing and one study has shown that there's now more energy in chicken meat from fat than protein and that there's been a significant reduction in the concentration of omega-3 fatty acids. Other reasons for changing in meat choice include preferred taste, ideologies, lifestyle and accessibility of product. So despite having a, a great production of, of mutton, meat and offal, there's not a lot of availability of particularly mutton at the retail level. And so all of these factors combined have led to a, a, a massive reduction in our consumption as a nation at a time when we're experiencing a significant negative impact on health due to dietary choices. So another part of my research will be looking at where our um, animal products end up. And at the moment, according to the Australian standards, these are the five places that um, our meat and meat products um, will end up. The Bureau of Statistics and the Department of Agriculture only currently publicly report on the first category, that for human consumption. Um, so, but the Food and Agricultural Organisation do report further and they, and they report on the quantity of meat for food supply, meat for other uses and wasted meat. And in Australia in 2011 there was a significant volume of mutton and goat meat and edible offal that went to other uses and also wastage of close to 10 kilotons of edible offal. In that period there was zero production of bovine meat, pig meat or poultry meat for other uses or wasted. So I'll be looking at where the mutton and offal is ending up and, and why it's ending up in those places and not on dinner tables either here or overseas. And the final part of my study will be to look at um, the effect of eating mutton and sheep offal in Australia and our greenhouse gas emissions. You can see here that um, agriculture produces about 85 uh, megatons of uh, carbon equivalent each year. That's 15% of our total um, emissions and enteric fermentation is a major part of that. It accounts for 10% of our total emissions. Um, I'll be looking at um, if we could have just a minor reduction in emissions per animals, the significance of this nationally and globally on greenhouse gas emissions there. 
So the way that I'll be doing this, I'll be interviewing farmers, um, primary producers, um, also industry reps and meat processors and retailers of meat uh, and uh, establishing the marketability of offal. Um, also looking at householders and why they choose the protein that they eat at the moment um, and whether they'd be open to the idea of consuming offal and mutton. Um, and also uh, modelling various different flock structures um, and seeing the effect that that has on our emissions there. Yeah, so thank you very much. Good evening. I'm without um, a display, so you're just going to have to listen to me, unfortunately. Uh, my name's Grant Hilliard from Feather and Bone. We're a small company that started about nine years ago, although really we've been a full-time company for about five years. Our focus is sourcing sustainably raised meat for both retail and wholesale distribution. Um, it's a very fraught term when you start talking about sustainably raised meat. I mean, it's, it's, you could sort of get lost in that because essentially it's a marketing term. So we try and break that down and I suppose the things that interest us are genetic diversity, um, soil health and soil nutrient density and then giving rise and it's really interesting the two discussions that, that were before me because they're, they're really key to a lot of our concerns. Um, so... We have a few parameters that make us, I suppose, different from the way most butchers work. Uh, we work directly with farmers, so we don't source from third parties at all. We go, I visit every farm that we source from, sometimes, as many times as possible. Um, and that's, partly that's to check what they're doing, but really it's to understand the story of how they're managing, essentially, their soil. That's what it's sort of boiled down to, because it's sort of the basis of everything. So when you do nutrient density studies, of that meat, I mean, what you're, what you're really sort of finding out from a ruminant is actually how good those soils were. Because unless you have soils that are active and, and offering up the full range of nutrients, that won't be embedded or fixed in the animal and certainly won't be fixed in you when you come to eat it. So our focus is very much on that, trying to find the best quality animals raised in the best possible way. Um, we're not really interested in what might be called quality meat. I suppose the distinction that we're looking for are the qualities of it. So... Uh, we don't have really subjective sort of standards. I'll never tell you that it's tasty. I'll never tell you that it's delicious. I think that's up to you to decide. What we say is that, for instance, um, and we do quite a bit of mutton, we also do hogget, we also do lamb, and we'll do some milk-fed lamb. So at any one time, you might find sheep of four different ages in our call room. The interesting thing to say there, and the important thing to say there, is that we're only buying whole carcasses. So we're stepping outside of the, the wholesale market completely. The one, the one point that where we touch it is through the abattoirs, and I'll get to that in a moment. Um, so we've found a market for mutton, just to refer back to that. Uh, it's, it's a difficult sell. Uh, we dry-age mutton on the, on the bone for up to six weeks, which sort of freaks people out a little, but it, you can do it when you've got the fat cover. If you think about it as just like a beef carcass, which it is, in terms of its age and development, it's, read, it's reached physiological maturity, which most beef that we eat hasn't. It's, in fact, like teenager that you're eating. Um, and as long as it's got the fat cover, you can age it really well. So we'll often sort of sell backstraps of dry-aged mutton that can be eaten raw, thinly sliced as carpaccio, which has the deepest flavour and is absolutely delicious. Um, we're talking about well-raised animals and not clapped-out ewes. So, you know, it's, it's different. They might have given product, there's productive sort of aspects to their life, whether it's through wool or, or lamb rearing. But we get them at a certain age. So hogget, uh, as you probably know, is two-year-old and then mutton three and above. So probably the average age of the mutton we get in is about three to five years. 
we sell a lot of offal as well and it's, it's not popular because people basically really only want to cook the eye fillet and the breast fillet these days. And that's, that's the thing that you have to overcome if you want to change the way people think. For us that's crucial. When you only buy whole bodies, you've got a lot of extra body to sell once you've sold the eye fillet. On a beef body, for instance, we get not uh, yearlings, which the commercial market works with. We work with two and three-year-old cattle. Uh, they're averaging around 300 kilograms on a carcass. Now, off that you will get four kilos of eye fillet, which is about 1.3% of its total body weight. That's about how often you should eat it if you're talking about sustainable production. But I guarantee that most people would be buying fillet much more than that, would be looking at about 60 to 80% of time that they eat it. Same with breast fillet and chicken. It's become, and it's because really we've sort of made a, a, an animal which is no relationship to a chicken in a sense. It's a, it's a genetic cul-de-sac which is in danger of not being able to, re it certainly can't reproduce itself. Uh, we sell it before it sexually differentiates and it's, you know, six to eight weeks, six weeks out of an intensive um, uh, chicken factory. And that's, that to us, I mean, you can't put much into a chicken in six weeks that is going to give you much out of it, except for sort of fats, really, essentially. There's an animal that never sees light, never, never sees anything but 40,000 other chickens in a shed. So the other aspect of what we do is that we only buy animals that live outside their entire life, or in the case of chickens, once they're feathered enough, which usually takes two to three weeks, depending on the season. Um, a few things I just wanted to pick up. Um, so as getting back to sustainable production, so the model that we try to sort of look at is for a farmer, it's a measure of inputs versus outputs. We're looking for farmers where their input level is either static or declining with an increasing or maintaining a level of output. And that is possible. So most farming in Australia is done with a really high input model. It requires huge amounts of investment with a very small return. So you might invest 90% to get 100% back, it's a and it's a, which obviously makes a high risk for those farmers as well. Uh, we're looking for farmers where by nurturing soil fertility and carbon in the soil, and this comes back to how ruminants are responsible for greenhouse gases, you can actually abate that very sort of seriously and, and finish up with a net gain if you use ruminants in a really critical way where they graze in really selected ways and you've got many, many different sorts of grasses and perennials in the pasture. You're actually storing more carbon in the ground than you're releasing. And if you store carbon, you also store water. Carbon is the great sponge of the earth. And in Australia, we've lost around 80% of the carbon since white people came here. Now, that means we've lost the ability to store water in the landscape. And if you lose the ability to store water in the landscape, it means it hits the ground, it won't penetrate because there's no air in the soil, there's no life in the soil, there's no light in the soil go straight off the top, straight into the rivers and out to the sea. So that's sort of what we're trying to work with. We're trying to work with farmers who are on that same journey of learning of how to manage and marshal the resources that they have, which are the animals, the soils, the grasses and the trees, into a coherent and viable farming system, which seems impossible, but it actually isn't. So the, the good news is that with the right genetics, you actually can produce meat good meat with high nutrient density much more cheaply than it, than it costs to produce poor meat. And that seems you know, impossible to, be, you know, to, to imagine, but it actually is true because really if you think of those animals, and this is the way we look at it, if you come into our core room and you see all these carcasses hanging in our core room, we see that as the con concentrated essence of the goodness of soil. That's what they are, they're sort of dense, metabolised goodness. 
At least that's what they should be. A lot of beef is not that. A lot of lamb is not that. So where we used to focus on uh, genetic diversity, and we certainly do in older breeds, but we're also looking at things that are newer breeds. For instance, in relation to merinos, we source one particular merino and it doesn't require any mulesing at all. So it's a SRS merino, which is straight rolling skin, doesn't have the huge folds. Uh, it is able to be sh- shorn twice a year. It yields 18.4 micron wool, really high quality. It yields a really good meat carcass and also potentially milk as well. So what we're looking at is a triple purpose lamb, which is you know, quite extraordinary if you're trying to get value out of stacking uh, character and, and stacking qualities into animals. And they're the qualities we're interested in where you can yield three different things from one sheep. And then possibly at the end of that still get offal from it, that would be you know, an absolutely fantastic result. But these are animals that are never drenched, uh, never mulesed and no fly strike, no lice treatment at all. And that's done in Riverina, which is you know, sort of home of that. Most people are grazing there or have gone to grain and he's gone the other way. He's got rid of grain or uses grain a bit in his paddocks but basically he's rearing sheep now and very successfully. Talk about chicken just for a moment. Um, one of the things that we're really interested in is uh, older breeds of chicken and we're working with a producer in uh, northern New South Wales who has managed to sort of backbreed and isolate seven older breeds of chicken and he now markets a, a, new, a new old meat chicken which is bred totally to forage. So if you take a the chicken that we all eat now and really that's all you can buy. There's only two sorts of chicken in Australia effectively, the cob or the ross and they're both, they're both sort of almost indistinguishable in terms of genetics. Even if you take that chicken and everybody buys the same chicken as one day old, whether it finishes up in a, in a shed with 40,000 other chickens or is grown outside on pasture, it still has the same genetics and the ability of, of that chicken to be able to express different genetics in six to eight weeks is obviously highly limited. And by about five weeks, those chickens, even outside, just tend to sit down because what happens is their breasts are so huge. This is what we want to cook, of course. The breasts are so huge that they find it very difficult to stand up. So their bone structure and their genetic code has been bred sort of differently. So instead of breeding structure and then meat, which is the, the way most animals grow, they breed meat, then structure, so, which is why they have such great trouble doing it. And couple that with intensive conditions, they have 18 hours of of daylight and like us at night they do all their bone growing at night. So without that structural integrity which is pretty much now why you can put a knife through any sort of chicken bone that you like, not through between the joints but actually through the bone itself because it has no structural integrity essentially. So we're working with this grower who has developed a very viable chicken. It can it lives up to four, if it, 14 weeks it's about a three kilo chicken carcass which is huge and and has huge, great flavour, forages really well, converts exceptionally well. So we're looking at about 80% of the conventional broiler. But you're not in that sort of, that system where you're basically working with the genetic sort of cul-de-sac of that, of that one chicken. And that to us is really important. I mean, the, the growth here in that slide, which showed you that pork and chicken were the great increases, it's no surprise that they're also the intensively raised animals of Australia. And in Australia, if you break down those figures, 95% of pork and probably higher amount of chicken, is grown inside. We're talking about a really tiny percentage that has grown outside. Uh, but that's, that's the sort of the pork and the chicken that we buy and do sell. But you know, that's what, we, to our mind, you have to move back to. You can't expect an animal that lives entire life inside with a medicated, medicated diet to be particularly good to eat 
or to have much nutrient in it apart from what it's only got what you're giving it and that's the bare minimum. The other aspect to this is that most of these people are working with very farmers are working and yes they do care for their animals, intensive or not, they obviously, they obviously do care for their animals. But they're working in a situation where their debt levels are extremely high. The infrastructure is expensive to make that, to grow animals like that. And so they often don't necessarily get the choice of when they want to do things. For instance, if you own the bank a huge amount of money and they say it's time to sow a grain crop and they say, well, it's too dry and it doesn't look like long-term forecast is particularly good, that you still have to sow that grain crop because you're indebted and you're actually in a situation where you're not really getting many choices about the way you do things. So by working directly with farmers, what we're trying to do is change the whole dynamic of that. Pay them an amount that is what they would say they need to be able to keep doing that because we're in the business of long-term relationships, not short-term ones, and we want them to be around next year to buy pigs or chickens or cows or whatever it might be. And so let them establish the price that they need. You come to an agreement and it becomes a transparent exercise. So in the end, transparency is what we focus on how a consumer can see straight back to the farm and through us in a transparent sort of way or come to down to our place and, and sort of see how that animal is treated. I said I was going to get to abattoirs, but we haven't at all. Um, it's a lot about pain management abattoirs. It's a really tricky thing. It's the, the thing that we're, out of a life of maybe three years plus gestation, you might be looking at four years in the case of beef cattle. People will focus on that, that one day and not the rest of the four years. And so we see it as a really key step but in a continuation of the cycle of, of production and consumption. And as a consumer, we would see you as a person that can absolutely dictate the style of production that you want. By, by making the, the choices that you do is a really powerful signal. And it's the only real signal we have, along with effective government regulation and labelling, which you alluded to, how poor the labelling was, and that is a real key issue. But the ACCC is taking it on at the moment and we are making real progress in accurate identification and labelling of egg products. They're moving on to pork very shortly and hopefully people will be able to actually make the judgments and make the decisions in an informed way, which is what we're after. Okay, thanks. Um, well, thanks so much for um, three excellent presentations, all illuminating different facets of a large and systemic problem. Um, I might start uh, by asking you, Grant. Um, I was very fascinated by the whole um, quite revolutionary way that you're talking about uh, the way we think about food and meat and the way it's connected to soil, grass, animals, a whole ecosystem. Um, can, I, can you tell us a bit more about... Um, how many farmers are thinking in that kind of way? How did you find them? Is your sense that um, agriculture is moving in the right direction? Um, you mentioned the ACCC and food labelling laws, but um, are there other roles that um, retailers such as yourself or other organisations can play in changing consumer and producer sensibilities um, in the direction that you're, that you're talking about? Uh, well, that's several tricky questions yeah, sorry, at once. Yes, sorry, rolled into one. Sorry I'll about that. <laughs> uh, in terms of farmers, yes, there's an increasing number of farmers. I think often driven to it simply because their economics of their business is not stacking up. Uh, one of the sort of common expressions you hear in farming is get big or get out. What that really means is you increase the scale, which means the point where your profit and your input goes like this and your output goes also the other way. The output drops below your input level 
is actually delayed. If you, if you increase the scale, you push that, that point away, but you actually don't change the fact that you're going to reach that point. And that's the issue. So small-scale farming, there's a, very, you know, there's a movement for smaller-scale farming. There's certainly a movement for uh, family farming. I mean, if you look at sort of Western Queensland at the moment, you might think that that's something that can't really sort of function very well. I mean, I think we've been sort of, you know... <laughs> Australia is a very difficult place to farm and because we've given up nutrient, because we've given up water holding capacity, we've made our job incredibly difficult. We're coming, you know, we, we arrived in a place which actually is, you know, compared to a lot of places that produce food, is, has, you know, very little really highly arable land, which obviously makes what's happening in the Liverpool Plain so contested at the moment. So what you're seeing are farmers who are being increasingly radicalised by that process because small areas of highly productive land are now under threat through competing uses and I think we're sort of all aware of what's going on in relation to, to mining and, and it's very difficult for those two things to, to operate effectively right next to each other at the scale that they're proposing. Most of the farmers that we work with, and initially it was quite difficult to find the farmers to work with, but then it, it sort of feeds itself and one will talk to the other and now it's quite easy to find farmers. But every farmer that I've ever visited, not once has their immediate neighbour done or liked what they do. They're very threatened by what they do. Because basically you're saying to them, you know the way you and many generations before you have farmed? Well, it isn't very good. There are costs to it, huge costs to it, in terms of animal welfare, soil fertility, water holding capacity and productivity. And that's a very challenging thing to look over a fence and have someone effectively, by the different practice, say that to you. So the internet has changed that because it's hooked up people in a way that they couldn't before. They were very, much more isolated, clearly, in the country. Still, the great enabler is going to be the internet in rural areas. And unfortunately, while we can talk about sort of fast internet speeds, most people in the country are still working on basically dial-up. So the NBN will change that. It will link people up in a way that they're not linked at the moment. It will have a huge impact. It will convey education and health to areas that are being depopulated and have been for the last 50 years. And you know, without a population, how are you going to sustain those? That's part of the sustainability question, is populations, people actually living there, not just, not just animals. You know, they actually have to be people to tend them. And then you can do multiple sort of uh, enterprises within the one farm. You stack the enterprises, it can become a very productive place in a very small area. Does that answer you? Very, very well, thank you. Um, just to ask a follow-up, um, how crucial do you think animals are to this great challenge of um, creating arable land that holds water? Um, I'm sure many of us will be aware of the recent um, UN report recommending a vegan diet. Um, what, what is your response to that idea that perhaps animals aren't part of the... Part of the solution? Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you look at most of those, those statements around what the costs are in animal production, they, they rarely state the assumptions that they work with, but often they will be uh, intensive feedlot beef, for instance, and absolutely, <laughs> its input level is, is astronomically high, its output level for what you put into it is, is unsustainable and that it'll, it will die a death simply because we won't be able to grow the grain to cart it to those places to feed them in the not-too-distant future. Um, they never underline those assumptions, so that's why you can sort of say there's a, a thousand million litres requires one kilogram of beef. If you look at animals that are grazed, and very few people are doing this, but are grazed in ways where 
they're actually managing their pastures in really, really critical ways. And you stop the grass. You know, most people set stock, which means that you just have animals in a field for an extended period of time. That is a sure way to reduce the productivity of your, of your pasture. Pasture is the best store of carbon. It's better than forests. It's a much more efficient store of carbon. Providing you, you harvest it in the right way, which means you only take the top and you leave a certain amount of grass so its, its engine is still productive. Mostly what happens in grazing patterns is it grows right down to the bottom. It takes ages for it to recover. You then lose ground cover, you then lose topsoil and, and then you're in a really bad cycle, especially if it doesn't rain again. So it's a management technique. You know, simply man good management will get you there. And grasses, let's not forget, grew up with ruminants. I mean, they, they've co-evolved. It's not like the animals just sort of became, said, oh, here are these grasses. You know, great thing to eat. In America, uh, before... Uh, bison, before white people came to America, there were 60 million bison living on the Great Plains. 60 million. I mean, that is an incredible amount of biomass. We now have got rid of all of those bison, or they have, and we've got 40 million cows standing around in feedlots fed by corn on the same property and with a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico from the runoff. Now, that to me does not seem like a very good exchange. Maybe I can move now to Sabrina. Um, I could continue that discussion. <laughs> well, feel free, feel free. Do you want to just Yeah, well, uh, my respond? family's yeah. from the Liverpool Plains, actually. Yeah, so um, just with what you were talking about, I completely agree. Um, we are, you know, grazing farmers, so we finish our beef on pasture. Um, we use rotational or cell grazing, and it's amazing. So we changed our management just a couple of years ago, and it's made our entire farm entirely more productive just for that. So um, things like just simply improving pastures, we're no-till farmers, we don't grow any um, grain, we don't feed any grain, we supplement with um, you know, uh, stored hay, so loosened hay that we cut off our own property. Um, and it has entirely changed our production and I think it's improved our, um, our land health as well in, in the process. So I think we are competing heavily with the mining um, boom at the moment and it's, it's a big issue in our area because it, not on one hand it provides a lot of employment for the people in the area but on the other hand um, it's an ugly scene with um, much, much, you know, the Liverpool Plain is our food bowl. It has some of the most fertile soils in the country um, and it's being destroyed by mining. So yeah, I... Yeah, I just wanted to put my plug in there. Yeah. But can I also ask, what, what made you make that change? And, and did you have to sort of wear a period of loss before um, you saw the kind of... Uh, my father was overseas uh, and the property was being managed um, by a manager. And so when he started to get more involved again, so my grandfather is a very traditional farmer and my uncle who was managing the farm previously uh, was a bit of a you know, jack-of-all-trades approach. So we need to grow grain because we need to, you know, sell grain. We need to um, grow cattle. We need to have sheep for wool production. And it's really difficult to manage when you try and diversify too much with not enough management um, input. So um, we changed the approach to management um, when my father started getting more involved in the farm um, and when I started to get more involved in the farm um, and just with sort of knowing what I know and what I've learned over the years, I just we've taken a new approach and 
Um, I'm a real big fan of pasture-finished beef. Um, I'm a really big beef fan in general. We have a meat judging team at the university that, that does a lot of um, carcass assessment. And I, what you were saying earlier about the quality um, aspect, um, I, I feel like that's something that is heavily focused on with MSA grading and the importance of grain feeding um, in producing a high quality piece of meat. On one hand, yes, if you're interested in the traditional quality aspects of, you know, MSA grading, which involves things like meat colour, intramuscular fat, um, meat texture, tenderness, you can, they, they kind of push the fact that you can only have these things if you eat feedlot beef, but um, I mean, I think, and I think I've converted most people into the grass, feed, grass feeding and eating grass-finished beef. There's more flavour, and I don't think tenderness is, is affected, and dry ageing has changed the you know, approach to, to eating beef in general. And if you dry age beef, and it doesn't need to be feedlotted or MSA grade. It's delicious. So, yeah. I do have one question just before I want to get back to anesthesia, but um, what is the relationship between everything you're saying and the word organic? Like, if I buy something that says organic on it, does it correlate with the sort of thing you're outlining? You might have an opinion on this as well. Um, I, I struggle with organic um, just because I think it is a really important term, um, but I think it's misconstrued as having a link with animal welfare a lot of the time. Um, and also back to the product labelling um, and loose sort of aspects of product labelling, um, organic is a widely used term and there's no... Um, yeah, you can have a good system while still using some form of chemicals. I mean, I understand a lot of people can take away the need to drench. We don't drench on our property because we don't have a huge intestinal parasite burden. Um, but things like vaccinations sometimes are really quite hard to avoid, especially when you're pasture feeding. Um, you know, a lot of the time you need to give your, your um, stock vaccinations prior to putting them onto lush green pasture um, because they can have consequences um, like pulpy kidney, which is a, or bloat, which is a significant disease that kills a lot of cattle um, if it's not managed properly. But I think there are other management techniques to accommodate for organic farming. I just think people need to read into it more carefully to understand what they're buying. I think maybe you might have something to say about that. When we sell organic beef that's certified, we're very, it pains to do that because certification systems exist and people pay for that certification. They pay with a percentage of their turnover and if they've gone through the trouble of being certified, they should be, it should be noted that that's the case. You know, there's, there's only sort of eight, I think, certifying bodies in Australia and their, their regulations are quite, are quite clear so you can actually check them. There is a trend now to, to forming groups where you uh, audit each other and you have a very clear set of uh, protocols that are adhered to, but it reduces the costs involved because for a small producer... Uh, full certification can be can be prohibitive. Uh, we need more language. It's very unnuanced, basically, to say, well, here's a certified organic piece of meat, and here's one that's conventional. Uh, there's a lot, you know, there's a million miles between what we might source that might be conventional beef and what would be something that's certified. Unfortunately, the people's attention span isn't very long. I mean, you'll still see, you know, chicken with no added hormones. Chicken hormones have been, you know, illegal in Australia for addition of chicken for 
30, 40 years, and they say no added hormones as though it's a huge bonus. I mean, all they are doing is adhering to the law for the last 40 years. It's, it's <laughs> what, because they've got nothing else to, sit, to say, really. You know, they're not going to say, well, bra- raised with, for six weeks with 40,000 other birds in a shed, you know. Mm, mm, yeah, okay. Um, I might just ask Kate, can you talk a little bit about the relative costs um, of mutton and whether there's any capacity for mutton to possibly compete with the kind of broiler chickens that are um, such a main part of the protein diet that people have? Sure. Um, we've, there's been a, a dietetic student working on this project as well and uh, she did a survey across some uh, meat retailers um, throughout Sydney and the Blue Mountains and she managed to find five that carried mutton and Grant's store was one of them. Um, so the, the cost at the moment isn't that different um, to lamb in, in the Sydney region. Um, possibilities for that, I guess availability is a big one. Uh, with you, if you've got so many few people selling it, um, they're going to be able to set a price there. So certainly offal is a lot cheaper, um, and a, you know, if you compare nutrients per 100 grams of offal to a piece of meat, um, you can buy a whole lamb's liver at your butcher for $5. So it's a really good source of uh, an economical source of micronutrients. So I think at this stage there's the psychological barrier with offal. Um, it's too identifiable as an animal. People look at it and say, oh, that really is an animal, whereas if you get your bag of minced meat yeah, um, or your chicken nuggets, you don't really identify that as animal. Um, and uh, also the preparation required. Um, cooking skills is a major, um, another hurdle um, for preparation of foods like mutton and offal. They're not things that you can put on the grill 10 minutes and off you go and have a nice tasty meal. So they'll be the things that we'll be looking at. Okay, thanks. And just one last question for Sabrina um, about anaesthesia. That story of what happened to your honours thesis sounds pretty amazing if you've managed to transform. (laughs) That isn't a successful honours thesis. Um, I almost got into genetics and then this project got thrown in my lap at the last minute and I was like... Wow. Wow. Very opposite direction. Wow. Right, right, right. Well, um, the animals of Australia, thank you. Um, so you've got 70 to 80% take-off of the topical anaesthesia. Yep. Um, can you tell us a bit about the process for commercialising that? Is it intellectual property? or And, also yeah. the, and the reason for the, all the different kinds of research of different kinds of anaesthesia you're doing? Yeah, I think the, the biggest limitation to widespread uptake of, of anaesthetic and analgesic agents is, is registration. Um, and the limitations of registration um, lie with the uh, Australian Pests and Veterinary Medicines Authority, APVMA. Yep. So um, trisulfan was a bit of a, a lucky... Um, thing that happened in that it was at the time when the industry was under a lot of pressure due to the the big push from um, from Peter to to drop to stop mulesing so at the time there was a huge campaign um, and a a typical um, knee-jerk reaction from the from the industry group at the time to say okay we're going to just stop the procedure it will ban it by by 2010 it'll be gone nobody will be using it anymore um, the issue was that that was not a possibility um, you know with so many sheep in Australia genetics is the solution and we are moving towards that but it's a really slow process I mean it relies on breeding intervals and selecting traits that will allow for and uh, no longer needing to mules um, so in the interim this 
product came about just at this time in 2005 when um, this whole PETA campaign was happening. Um, we d did these initial trials and all of a sudden we were like, we're really onto something here. It's working and people were happy with it. And so the APVMA gave us a permit to release the product for use uh, by prescription from your veterinarian. So um, that was unique um, and that process led to quite an easy registration process for the product. When you go to register a veterinary or medical um, chemical, it needs to go through some pretty heavy testing. So um, one of the major and most costly things is doing what we call minimum residue limits. Um, this is uh, basically to assess how long the active stay within the meat um, of the animal uh, and so gives you an idea of the safety of the product. The MRLs, as we call them, were not set for um, a few things in the product, but because it, they are individually widely used products, it was allowed to be registered for mulesing in sheep because these sheep would not be entering the food chain within a year of life because they're wool producing animals. It's made it really tricky getting it um, registered for things like dehorning and castration in, in cattle and sheep um, because they are meat producing animals or meat producing sheep um, and pigs, uh, especially because pigs have a very short um, interval of life um, between you know, castration and consumption, essentially. Um, getting to the pig industry, we don't really castrate pigs in Australia, so a lot of the work that we're doing is feeding into the European um, market. Um, we don't castrate pigs in Australia, really, because we don't um, keep them long enough to reach sexual maturity, so we don't get the issues um, like boar taint, which is why pigs are castrated. Um, so, yeah, registration is limited because... Um, we haven't set the MRLs, so we're still hoping that other products, you know, there's a lot of really great non-steroidal anti-inflammatory products, but again, minimum residue limits have to be set in individual species, and these can cost over a million dollars to do the tests. And then um, you can't patent that information, so that any company that invests that money, it then becomes free information, so every pharmaceutical company could then go and produce that product and... Um, you know, from a, from a commercial perspective, it's not really safe for them to do that, so it's hard to get people to invest. But hopefully the industry is moving that, that way now. So, All right. Um, I might throw up to the floor for questions. Thank you all for being here and for sharing that because it's such, there's so many important issues. I just wondered about um, regulations in New South Wales because the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance has recently been campaigning on behalf of... Um, a pig farmer in the Yarra Ranges in Victoria. Um, she's farming free-range pigs, but they've been um, determined to be intensive under the Local Planning Act, which means that, from what I understand, they're receiving more than 50% of their feed from non-pasture sources. So that means, but by that ruling, as we've as we've said, it would make equestrian centres um, beef produces dairy farms also intensive by virtue of the fact that in drought or in winter you have to provide supplementary feed. So I'm just wondering, do those regulations affect farmers in New South Wales and what can consumers do other than making ethical choices in their purchasing of meat? What can, what can you do to get those regulations at least, if not necessarily changed, at least to represent the reality of life? Um, 
there's a number of issues there. That is a local one that's state-based. It's, it's a local planning authority change in, in interpretation. And my understanding is it's about how much nutrient is bought in, imported into the farm. If you produced it, so if you were making hay or silage, that would count as non-farm production. Um, the tricky thing with pigs and, and chickens is that they're om, omnivorous, not ruminants. So to, they can survive on pasture, but they will not grow in the way that you would hope them to for food product uh, without really high levels of protein. So they're fed grain-based diets with a meat protein, usually either fish or meat derivative, and you're looking at about 17% protein, which is much higher than, than most grains will be able to give you. And if you want to avoid uh, genetically modified soy, then you might, that, that's one of the big sort of protein inputs that you're going to get in there. So it becomes trickier still. Uh, that particular farmer was on a very small block of land in a, in a particular area, so-called Green Wedge area. And uh, she, I knew someone who rep sort of advised her in, in or know the woman who advised her in, in that case, and they were hoping, they didn't think they would win it, they were hoping that she would have time to withdraw sort of gracefully rather than stop farming straight away. Um, it's a very small farm. The trouble with a lot of regulations is that they, most councils don't have uh, any way of understanding uh, extensive systems. They only understand intensive systems. And so they will say, oh, you're a chicken farmer, meat chicken farmer. That means you have to have uh, 400 metre setbacks from every watercourse on your farm. And you've got 50 chickens in a pasture that have to be 400 metres away from the farm that will put you in the next farm, not in your farm. Um, and they simply do not have the the bylaws within the council to be able to address extensive farming, in the case of pigs and chickens especially, because all they've ever licensed is huge sheds, which should be that far away from watercourses because uh, a lot of the time they externalise their costs by just letting that go and they don't deal with the effluent created out of it. So, you know, cheap food is cheap a lot of the time because they're not paying the full cost of production. Uh, we pay it as a society in, in, in much more general terms. The only way to get around it really, and is, this comes down to consumption, is to inform yourself as best as possible about where the pork you buy comes from and what the production system was and how many sows they're running on how large a block of land. They're very, um, you know, pigs disturb the land a lot and they need a lot of land, but used really strategically, they can be a, a great disturber of land, providing they're moved. Disturber, disturbing that allows, disturbance that allows actual nutrient increase rather than, than degradation, but that requires really keen management and requires a certain amount of land to do it. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. That was so interesting. I have questions for everyone, but I'll, I'll focus just one on uh, for Sabrina. Um, I do research in fashion and sustainability, and it's a really popular um, term when people are looking at wool to go for the non-mulest wool. And um, I mean, I'm sure it was a similar reaction to what to the PETA event that you're referring to. But I just wondered if you could explain what are some of the non-mulesing techniques that might be used, and you know how how effective are they compared to what you're kind of experimenting. Good question. So um, Australian Wool Innovation is the industry body for the wool industry um, and they had a bit of a change in their corporate structure and their board of directors. Um, shortly after the, the sort of 
events that happened in around 2005-2006. Since then, they've been really actively engaged with the fashion industry um, and the general population, um, animal rights groups and animal welfare groups. Um, Annually, they have two forums a year where they try and engage animal rights and animal welfare groups. Um, Where the fashion industry comes in, um, I was actually quite lucky to be taken along on a few trips over to the UK and the US to some of the big meetings of um, a lot of the big... um, clothing labels and clothing brands and um, we meet with them and discuss the options and how the industry is moving. So to answer your question, um, Mules Wool, uh, we have what's called a National Wool Declaration form. Um, Every farmer is supposed to fill this out. It's kind of laborious so we don't get 100% compliance but it's pretty good. Um, On the form they can declare their wool as mules, non-mules or cease mules or mules with pain relief. So four different classifications. Non-mules means that they, um, the the flock that they have has never been mules so that means the ewes and rams and everything within the generations have not been mules. Cease mules means that they were mulesing and they stopped mulesing. Um, so part of their flock may be mulesed, but the majority probably isn't anymore um, because as they get older, you know, they sell off the sheep that have been mulesed. Um, mulesed with pain relief is if they've used trisulfan. Um, there's not really any other registered product, so it is trisulfan. And then there's just plain old mulesed. The issue is that there is not really a price benefit for farmers to declare their wool in these areas. While the retailers on one side are paying a premium for non-mules, cease mules, or mules with pain relief wool, that's not translating back to the farmers. And that's the big issue, is that the middleman somewhere is, is taking that that money. So the incentive there for farmers to declare their wool in the first place and to use pain relief is not really there. So it's quite impressive that they are using the product. The tools that they have in place when they stop mulesing, and many farmers have, um, it, it is possible. So farmers that grow SRS merinos or a lot of farmers are breeding what we call a planar bodied sheep. So um, planar bodied means they don't have those tight wrinkles. So the, the image that I showed of the lamb with the really tight wrinkles, that's a very traditional merino farmer. Um, he actually is a really lovely guy and he really cares about his sheep, but they're all about this traditional, you know, high, greater surface area, greater wool production. We don't want any bare skin on the sheep at all. Whereas um, the genetics is moving towards planar bodied animals with less wrinkle and a large, what we call bare area, which is basically the perineum. So the, the, the area of plains wool-free skin around the anus and vulva of the sheep, what mulesing does is it actually stretches that area um, so that it doesn't collect feces and, and urine. They can breed that naturally in sheep and we are finding that. Or sheep that have hair in that area rather than wool, hair is very short, it doesn't collect feces and wool because it falls out, uh, feces and urine, sorry. So the breeding is moving towards that. Um, to stop mulesing, there's some chemical products on the, on, in the industry available now. Um, one really fantastic product is called Click. Um, it is uh, insect growth regulant, so basically it stops um, the, the larval phase of the fly from progressing. So... Um, you know, it, it has been an amazing tool for farmers. Um, 
it is quite expensive. It's about $2 a head and they usually have to use it about twice a year. Um, the other option is they will crutch. Well, crutching is shearing the breech area of the sheep to remove the daggy, um, which is feces ridden wool. Um, and they usually do this at least once a year, maybe twice a year, in addition to the chemical usage. Um, we, we do have a bit of an issue of um, increasing resistance in the fly population, and so using chemicals is not ideal um, because it will lead to those increasing, um, increasing resistance. So um, the options are there for farmers, but as Grant mentioned, good management can be in place. It's just the costs of that. Um, you know, a lot of farmers that have 20,000 sheep on their property, it's harder to implement those changes. But hopefully, eventually, genetics will, you know, be quite widespread because farmers are moving in that direction um, and they'll have the tools in place. There are also painless alternatives which aren't actually painless. So they, they released um, mulesing clips which were um, basically, um, if anyone's seen those kind of plastic bag clips that you use to kind of clip bags shut, they were basically that. So they occlude the, the tissue um, inside the clip and it's, it's just ischemic. So it causes quite a lot of discomfort and pain. So the industry moved away from that. Um, but there is a... Um, an injection that they're looking at, it's an intradermal um, mulesing sort of injection, which um, I think has promise but uh, isn't, isn't very easy to use. Um, so really, genetics and management is, is the answer to that, yeah. in a long way round. <laughs> hearing, you, hearing you talk about all those mulesing um, alternatives made me think, is, is the merino kind of the right animal in the wrong place? Or does it, suffer, do, does it require mulesing in Spain? Is it Spain where it comes from? Or is it just so genetically overbred that wherever a merino is, it generally needs mulesing? So, um, no. So mulesing is unique to Australia and it was to New Zealand as well and that's because we have Lucy. So Lucilia caprina was introduced into Australia around the early 1900s and they think that it came from Africa or India. They're not quite sure, but we'll blame somebody else basically. Um, the Merino obviously came with the white man to Australia, um, but it was it was the introdu introduction of, of the fly, Lucilia caprina, that created the issue. So together they make fly strike. Um, outside of Australia, they don't have the issue. So South Africa has merinos, a large portion of merinos, and so does China, in fact. But they don't have Lucy, so they don't even need to tail dock um, in South Africa, let alone mules. So it is a unique environment here that causes the problem. And they are doing work towards combating the fly. You know, they've sequenced the entire fly genome now, and they're working at um, methods of attacking the fly itself, which is, you know, those sort of solutions are the ideal way of addressing the issue. Uh, yeah, you're right. They're from Spain, but the populations here were bought from South Africa and um, and bred up here. Mostly, they were crossed. Uh, they were interested in in obviously wool production and secondarily in meat production. And um, it's it was sort of a consequence of the wool production rather than the first thing that they were thinking about. In fact, they didn't eat. You know, they were too valuable to eat at all uh, in the early days. And um, we did a function at uh, MacArthur's farm, Elizabeth Farm, 
recently and they, the diaries show that they, they were building up their flocks and they would never eat any of them. What they did eat were local ducks, uh, kangaroos, so despite the sort of assumption that um, we didn't, you know, white people didn't eat much uh, indigenous food, they actually did. And um, it sort of was later that, that, that sheep became ubiquitous as, sort of, as, as a diet and it was more mutton and hogget rather than lamb. lamb. Small animals of any sort are a celebration food because they're foregone potential and um, it's, it's a strange sort of world we live in where we celebrate every single day. Uh, it sort of takes the pleasure out of the feast, you know. I mean, we're feasting all the time and as, as was pointed out earlier, you know, for the first time in the developed world, you know, Poor people are fat now, not thin. Poor people used to be very thin, and now poor people are fat, and that's that's a complete, you know, that's an indictment on the way we eat, and it's certainly an indictment on the food system that brings it to us. So. Hi, um, I was just wondering, communicating these to your colleagues and people who don't really know much about what you're doing. Um, I found really challenging. Have you got any ways that's not just showing photos of, you know, hens and factories and all that kind of thing to get people to change habits? Because I think whilst we can come up with all these solutions and better ways of farming and all that kind of stuff, um, it's potentially us simply eating less meat in the long term. And how have you found communicating that to people efficiently and to make encourage change? Um, I think it'll be very difficult in getting Australians to eat less meat. Um, statistics back from 1938 showed that we ate over 100 kilos per head annually back then. So we've had a long history of being a meat-based diet. And I guess it is because it's, with our pasture lands, it is a very um, sort of easy crop for us to grow. Um, as Grant mentioned, we've only got 6% of our land is arable at the moment, which means that we can crop on it. So whereas we've got 50, 57% of Australia is under agricultural um, uses, and so that leaves 50% of our land or more has got grazing animals on it. So it's a fantastic way for Australia to turn grasses that otherwise we couldn't ever eat and land that we couldn't ever get food off into a food source for us. So... I don't know whether Australians will readily adopt um, changing their eating habits. Um, the role of government um, probably is a big part. Uh, governments are quite short-term and quite focused on you know, the sensational yeah, grab line. Uh, so hopefully Australian government and politics will change that we will look into the future and we'll get some bipartisan ideas about setting aside land just for food production rather than mining in the short term and realise that this is something that within the next 100 to 150 years is going to come to a crisis point for Australia. Uh, we're going to be at capacity with population and our food production, um, certainly I would imagine in that time frame from the predictions with climate change and our current production levels. I would just add to that by saying that you know we have the, the dialogue is about uh, how we're going to feed Asia, and um, which seems you know slightly overreaching to me. We we um, yes, there is a burgeoning middle class that would like to eat more meat right through Asia, but I mean our production systems uh, at the moment will not sustain that. I mean that's what's sort of that's certainly my belief and possibly my colleagues here as well. Just to add just a small bit to that, uh, with the communicating, um, I think 
it's really difficult because you only know a very small portion of people. So if you can affect change in your friends or your colleagues, that's one thing. But I don't think it's these people that we're talking to every day that are the ones that we need to change. I think, and it's the same with politics, you know, there's a large portion of our population that that is ignorant to these issues and, and these things and are n probably not going to change their practices. And it's also a matter of income, you know. Um, when chicken is mass produced and it's almost a one-to-one -one feed conversion ratio, so almost every gram of food you feed a chicken produces a gram of meat. That's insane to think about. Um, and it's really cheap. It's a great source of protein and it's easy to cook. And, you know, people are just buying it. You know, you go to Coles or Woolies and the meat section is huge and you've got budget beef everywhere. So I think it's an income thing. Um, it's it's an education thing and it's, it is down to the governments to do that in the end. For me personally, I think it's about um, talking to people about choosing the right kind of beef um, or, or meat, for example, um, choosing to eat free range or grass-fed or grass-finished beef is a really will make a difference because feedlots really are the biggest issue. So they use a huge amount of water, they use a huge amount of um, vaccinations and to control things like bovine respiratory disease, which is endemic in feedlots, um, subclinical acidosis from feeding grain without feeding any... Um, any sort of fibre in their diets. They need fibre to tickle their rumen to stimulate rumination. Um, so these are the issues. I think it's more about just talking to people about making choices. Um, they can still eat meat. You can still eat meat, just maybe not every day and maybe just think about the kind of meat that you're eating and where it comes from. And I mean, there's some great movies and videos out there now um, that can be quite dramatic, I think. Um, but, you know, perhaps they're what we need to be turning to, you know, maybe if you go dramatically in the other direction, people might fall somewhere in the middle. So, But it is a difficult thing communicating to people around the nation. Okay, well I think that might be a really good note to end on, so um, please join me in thanking all our speakers.